Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Lee Jiang. Lee is a distinguished engineer at Microsoft working on Azure Speech. Lee, welcome to the Twimble AI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation. You have had a long history working in speech recognition, generation, all different areas. Before we dig into some of the key innovations that you've been working on, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Definitely. I was lucky to be introduced to speech recognition while I was an undergraduate student in mid-1980s. I had opportunity to participate in research work as an undergraduate student researcher. I remember we building, trying to build a speech recognition system on Apple II computer. <laughs> of course, uh, the technology was fairly rudimentary and uh, at that time, and uh, you know, based on today's standard. But I fell in love with the problem space right away. It was simply magic to see a computer can respond to your voice and recognize what you said. So I decided that this is the area I want to pursue. A number of years later, I was halfway through PhD program, focused on speech recognition, and I had the opportunity to you know, come to do internship with Microsoft Research. That was the time the speech research group was just established. I loved the experience and I loved the company, and so much so that I stayed on and never actually returned to school. So that was 1994. I became one of the first few people working on speech in the company. So over the past 27 years, I worked on the different roles and the spanning both research and engineering side. So I did branch out into some other areas, but I, I was happy to come back eventually to speech field. Now currently leading the audio and the speech technology as part of the Azure Cognitive Services. I was fortunate to witness not only the dramatic advancement in technology in the past few decades, but how the technologies enabling people to do more and to improve their productivity. It has been a great ride, and I loved every moment of it. Now, you mentioned the advancement in the field over the past few decades. You know, what technologies were you working with when you got started in speech? When I got started uh, really early, as I said, I was in, in, in college. And at that particular time, it's just mostly the you know, pattern matching. And one of the things is probably well known is called a, you know, DTW, dynamic time warping. So essentially, you try to sort of match one sequence with another. Then you have to handle that the different lens. You have to sort of making sure that you know, mostly dynamic programming type of technique to match the sequence really well to see how well it matches template. So that was the fairly long time ago, though. And over the past few years, you know, we've clearly seen a lot of innovation taking place through machine learning techniques. We'll be talking about that in a fair amount of detail. But I'm curious, you know, how do you think about the progression in speech through the course of your career? Yeah, I'd love to share my perspective. Essentially, speech is the most natural way to communicate. So using voice to interact with machine has always been one of the top scenarios associated with AI. So since 1950s, you know, researchers had started working on speech recognition. The earliest system focused on relatively you know, simple tasks such as digits and numbers recognition. 
Technology-wise, as I said, the focus to start with was really on the pattern recognition and the rule-based expert systems. So it was the statistic approach with Hadamard models that really created the new era and served as a foundation for modern speech recognition systems. The HPMM framework resulted in major breakthroughs and enabled accurate recognition of large vocabulary, speaker-independent, continuous speech. Prior to HPMM, there was always some kind of restrictions, such as you have to do isolated speech, or it's small vocabulary, or speaker-dependent fashion, and the, the, it's really the HMM framework helped lifting all those restrictions. And HMM being hidden Markov models? Yes, yeah. That has been a dominant technology prior to deep learning era. And even today, I think with the deep learning, I think some of the, the HMM, such as the you know decoding framework and uh, you know other things, is still sort of the same as used in, in the HMM era there. So towards 2010, deep learning started showing promising results for speech recognition. The early work using feedforward DNN demonstrated its power with significant improvement accuracy over HMM. So essentially, by replacing the Gaussian mixture, you know, the sort of probabilities with the sort of output of the DNN network, I think that really has been a major step forward there. So the neural network models are not only very good at memorizing it, and it was able to model the longer context much more effectively. And for that reason, I think it actually generalized much better. So since then, there has been rapid innovations in different model architecture. The LSTM model was found to be very suitable for speech, and it became the newer you know, generation of the models that further improved the, the performance. So more recently, uh, transformer models, which originated in NLP, has really shown you know, promising improvements across different fields, including speech. So another important development uh, when it comes to speech recognition is really the end-to-end architecture. And until now, I think even today, for cloud speech recognition system, we still have, and most people do, still have the separate acoustic model, language models. In the last few years, the end-to-end speech recognition models have got a lot of tractions, a lot of investment and uh, research work there, meaning a single model can take speech in and just output text Results. So essentially, the single end-to-end models are jointly modeling the acoustic and language aspects. So the end-to-end architecture is particularly suitable for devices as its memory footprint can be 100 times smaller than traditional architecture and you know, accuracies could be sort of on par or roughly the same. So without a doubt, in summary, the deep learning has had profound impact on, uh, for speech field as an example, Microsoft first actually reached the human parity on a very challenging switchboard task in 2016, thanks to deep learning technologies, and it was a historical milestone for AI. Can you describe that switchboard task a little bit? Yes, yeah, switchboard task is a well-known and the data set and task and for the for speech community. It was collected by NIST and LDC, and uh, essentially data set was sort of collected to so the research and the community can tackle the conversational speech and the, the problem. Uh, so what it does, how it, it was collected was to have two people talk with a selected topic, commonly a great topic, and, uh, you know, select from a range of topics, and then they just carry a free-form conversation. For example, the topic could be talk about credit card, talk about finance, and, uh, you know, some other topic. So it's a really free-form conversational uh, speech, 
it's very challenging task because it's not scripts and it's not a you know a read speech. It's a, just a spontaneous a conversational speech. It has a lot of disfluency effects, you know, has such as hesitation, for start, repetition, filler words, every, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. And so the telephony channel, of course, added, you know, even more difficulty to the task. So I think uh, over the past two decades or uh, two decades or so, I think uh, when people started working on this, has very high error rate, probably starting with 20% and then down to 15 to down to, you know, 10-ish. I think that October 2016, and uh, Microsoft reported that the two results. One of them is we had a transcribe, professional transcribers trying to transcribe that. And the, for even for human beings, the accuracy of the error rate came as a 5.9%. Then the system wow. with the deep learning can actually uh, was able to achieve 58 So that was essentially reaching the same ballpark of the performance as human. Of course, I mean, the other teams, organizations, and uh, also work on this. So they point out the same. Well, if we have multiple human working as a team, then human can actually do better than 5.8. It's true. So that they essentially, with the multiple people working on transcribing over cross-checking and uh, you know, validating, they can get down to 5.1%. Essentially, there's still you know, 5%-ish error rate, and uh, even mm-hmm. for human. So I think after a year or so, in around August 2017, and you know, with further work from the Microsoft and the system, I was able to reach 5.1%. Once again, reaching the human parity, even with the multiple human team up to do the human transcription there. You know, we're talking about error rates and human parity as the benchmark for these types of tasks. Is there any work that's been done to characterize the types of errors i'm envisioning for example humans might make errors that preserve the meaning just in their heads they kind of substitute out words but they don't change the meaning whereas machines might make words that are more impactful from a perceptual perspective or from a meaning perspective has anyone looked at that I think there might have been some of the work in, uh, for the analyzing the results, the error types. And uh, uh, I agree with you that, um, you know, for human and uh, machine that might be making different type of errors. But once you, when you get into the 5% range, I think most of the errors based on my analysis of the, some of the very sort of brief looking over the errors, a lot of those is because the, the you know, conversational nature of the senses even for human, it's not obvious that, uh, you know, what mm. that particular word is. And so it's, it's for computers, it might be sound like mistake. And for humans, that might be it also sound like, but a slightly different form. So I think it comes down to probably not a, there's not a huge pattern and to be clear says what type of error it is. It's just a certain portion of the speech plus the channel noise make it really hard to be intelligible to even to human beings. Okay. Okay. And you've talked a little bit about this transition from kind of this hybrid model where you've got a separate model for the acoustic channel and and a language model to end to end train model. Can you elaborate on the pros and cons, the challenges of each of those different types of models? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. So I think that the, the traditional architecture, essentially we have the, that's mostly widely used one. 
and uh, it has the, a few of the decoupled models. And essentially, we have acoustic models that trying to model the acoustic uh, the events. Essentially, trying to tell which particular you know phonemes you're pro, you know producing a sequence of phonemes. That's that's the, the role of the model. Then we have mm-hmm. a language model that is trained. The acoustic model is trained down. Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands hours of the speech and the labeled speech data. The language model itself is trained on the text. It could be trained on you know billions, hundreds of billions, or even trailing the words. And essentially, for our language model, it's literally trained on trailing word corpus. But it's a text only. Essentially, trying to model the you know if I see this sequence, then what is the next word would be? And then of course, there's a you know pronunciation that connects the acoustic and the, the you know word and the, uh, together. So essentially. Essentially, we have a three major part and uh, acoustic model, language model, pronunciation model. And it has been achieving great accuracy performance and uh, it works well. The downside of that is um, the memory footprint is actually huge because the language model tends to be it takes a number of the gigabytes and the uh, you know, size and uh, you can compress, you know, you can sort of construct the graph and the FST and uh, with the, the language model and the highly compressed binary form, but it still takes the multiple gigabytes in order to be able to, to do the search and the decoding over the graph. Um, but the benefits of the pros and the biggest one is that the, this decoupled architecture, you can train the te- language model, you can decouple, like you can train the language model from uh, trailing of hundreds of billion or trailing words. That is really flexible that uh, you can sort of use more of the text data to train part of your speech recognition model. The biggest benefit is you can easily customize the model. For example, if you have a new word, Tomorrow, there's a new uh, sort of terminology comes in. You can just modify, tweak your language model very slightly. You can add a new word. You can add a pronunciation, and uh, now you get it. And in the system, in that instantly, you can have it. The end-to-end model has been the, really the trend, the new trend for the, the community. Has been a lot of effort put into this area. Has been a huge amount of progress over the past two to three years. So in terms of accuracy, that uh, it's more or less can match the hybrid model. And uh, the biggest benefit is really, really small and compact. Essentially, you have one model. You don't have the, no longer have a separate models. And uh, you can have the model that is small enough. You can fit into smartphone or even IoT device and uh, a fairly small size. That, that, and you also get the, you know, a very, very accurate recognition of the model. So the biggest problem, I think, with the end-to-end architecture as of today is still the ability to customize and to modify. And if you, for example, the same problem, if you have a new world, we want to add that new world into the system. We don't have a technology. We can easily insert a new world into the system. And you almost have to somehow and uh, sort of getting that data and uh, to retrain the entire model in order to, uh, you know, for it to recognize this new world. So this flexibility is the biggest uh, issue that the community is still working on. Since we no longer can train the language model separately, because all the acoustic models, language models are folded together into a single model, and then your data sort of have a bigger dependency on the speech labeled speech data. Data amount and the data coverage becomes a much problem. If your training data has never seen a, a particular combination, for example, in order to recognize you know, even all the numbers or the names you have never 
appeared in your training data, it's harder problem for the end-to-end -end system and the models to be able to cope well with the something it has never seen before. And uh, so for that reason, I think there's a still mm. good amount of research work and the focus on the area. And that's in contrast to a hybrid model where in it may have not seen the word before, but it's heard the sounds and knows the phonemes and that kind of thing. Yes, and especially because you can train a language model. Language model can cover you know hundreds of billion of the words in the context. So that gives mm -hmm. you the context that you don't necessarily have that in the labeled speech data. So essentially, that aspect is the one that is still mm -hmm. uh, sort of having advantage over the end-to-end, -end, which you can only use. Its advantage is also disadvantage. You can only use the sort of speech label, you know, speech data that to train the end-to-end -end model. You can. At least there's no there's a research work on that to use the separate text data to enhance the model, but that has so far been more of the research topic. Mm -hmm. Your earlier point was that these end-to-end -end models are more compact than the hybrid models. That's maybe a little bit counterintuitive because we think about these transformers as being relatively large and heavyweight from a, an inference perspective, a deployment perspective. Can you elaborate on, on what makes them more compact? Is it just that the former, you've got three models? Yes, yes, correctly. Uh, mostly the hybrid models, the, the reason is huge is the language model itself. So language model, and they're actually two types of language model. Over the uh, past few decades, the uh, so-called Ngram language model has really been the backbone of uh, speech recognition. And even as of today in the hybrid model, the Ngram model still is the backbone. And uh, the reason is the Ngram model is uh, essentially it's a statistical model. It just basically count the you know, co-occurrence of the words together. You can have you know, different orders of the n-gram. And when n equals one, you get a unigram. n equals two, you get a bigram, trigram, you know, n equals three, trigram, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. The benefits of the n-gram models is really efficient. And, you know, both in terms of training and also in terms of the, the, the runtime decoding. But the speech, because it's sort of high-dimensional uh, timing sequence, the real-time recognition of the decoding is so critical that we can't really wait for. So that basically makes the engram to be the sort of unique choice and still as a sort of choice for us today in the first pass, what we call the first pass decoding. So that language model, uh, the engram language model is typically tens or you know, hundreds of times sort of bigger than the acoustical model itself because you have to memorize you know, how many you know, words followed by some other word sequence. You have to basically sort of store those uh, things together. As I said, that there are ways to compile into a you know, graph and a very efficient implementation. But even with that, uh, the majority of the size for the you know, cloud hybrid uh, system is really on the size of the language model and the decoding graph. With the end-to-end -end models, we no longer have that uh, sort of decoupled language model. So essentially, language model is folded as part of the end-to-end -end model. It's transformer the encoder. We typically um, we can use recurrent neural network, it's RNT, or it, it could be transformer. And then we have something called a transducer uh, sort of architecture. Then you have a so-called language you know, prediction network is equivalent to the hybrid language model, but it, it's just LSTM. And essentially, it's relatively straightforward, a small size, and then you have a unified network and uh, combining them together. So the overall model is not much bigger than the encoder itself. 
and uh, it's probably could be comparable to the acoustic model in the hybrid architecture, but without the uh, n-gram language model itself. That's how the the size can be so much more compact and so much more smaller. Got it. And then the next challenge you mentioned was that of customization. You mentioned that as a open research topic, but I do know that a service on the Azure side, as you're trying to deliver this, folks will want to customize their speech recognition systems, bring their own words, bring their own label data, and you do accommodate that in some way. Is that right? Correct, correct. When I talk about the, the customization for end-to-end model is still a research topic. That's why the end-to-end model is still not being used for our cloud service yet. Ah, uh, so okay. I think that's probably true for you know most of the you know other providers. So right now the the end-to-end model has been used has been released and uh, to be on the device on the edge, and mm-hmm. but for the cloud, I think it still lacks some of the flexibility I mentioned. Uh, so for the customization, I do believe that is a very critical capability and feature for a lot of services. The reason mm-hmm. is for different domains, for different scenarios, and uh, for you know even for different companies. And uh, there are so many of the terminology or jargons or technical terms or some of the things very much related to a particular application scenario. Generally, you know, even though our generic system performs pretty well and uh, it's still challenging when it comes to those different entities, which is domain-specific. So having the ability to customize the models and for a particular application scenario has been uh, you know, very important. So for Azure Speech Service, we do offer this capability that we offer the you know, platform. Like you can bring your own data, you can upload your text data, depending on how aggressive you want to do, you can start with the, the language model, you can upload your text data corresponding to the content and the mostly applicable to your scenario. Then we can use that to customize language model only, or when you have an application that is very you know, large-scale application, you have acoustic data, you can also upload your speech data, then we can use that to customize the acoustic model, you know, of course, we can customize the pronunciation as well, fine-tune that, and we provide a studio that you can essentially experiment, you can run the evaluation against your own data, then making sure the new model is doing better. We feel like that's a great feature for the customers to have their application working really well. Mm -hmm. Is the focus from a service perspective, are you focused on kind of very broad and common language, or are you also going to you know, popular domains like, say, medicine or finance or law, things like that, and proactively kind of building out your data set to incorporate more and more of that specialized terminology? That's a great question. I think for our service, we aim at a fairly generic scenario. So we build our models and with as broad a data coverage as possible, and we always when we do the evaluation, we do the testing, we test against the right range of scenarios and applications, making sure that works relatively well. So we do offer the customization feature because we feel like that is the additional feature and the you know, capability that we can offer the customers by having means for them to participate in this customization. And also, you know, another reason is like 
we don't see the data when they update the data and they control the data, they control the model. So it belongs to them and the rights. And so that's the way we address it, how we have the sort of platform capability to make our models and be improved, being fine-tuned and you know, optimized towards the application. Uh, so there are different domains. Uh, some of the domains, uh, for example, finance domains, is probably does not, some kind of optimization would be sufficient because it's still generic enough. But medical domain, for example, is as an example, is going to be much harder for the generic models to perform well. And that's because the medical domain has so many sort of terminology. And even, you know, for me and a lot of those words are totally unknown to me. And Mm -hmm. uh, um, that's require much deeper and, uh, you know, investment. And uh, uh, Nuance, actually, it's a well-known Nuance has been a leader in that space. It has really spending lots of investment and a lot of experience in handling medical domain. So that's also, you know, part of major rhythm why Microsoft uh, decided to acquire Nuance. And uh, I do hope, you know, post-acquisition and what we have and what Nuance have, and we will be able to leverage each other and uh, really being able to provide in the, the solution both in terms of generic capability and also some of the domain specific, especially when it comes to the medical. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we think about artificial intelligence from a very common mass market perspective. You think about the system that you, you know, you train, you train on some data, you teach it some stuff and then it learns and then you collect some more data, you teach it more stuff, and then it learns. And, you know, say you've got this broad set of capability that you've collected a lot of data about common speech, you've built this model, and then you might think, hey, let's go find another domain, teach the same model about this other domain because we've collected more data. And then you keep, you, we think a bit of it like how we learn. You keep stacking, and as you learn things, it doesn't necessarily degrade the performance of the base level things that you've learned. But is that the case for the kinds of models you're working with? Or would you always want the to kind of segregate the knowledge for the different domains? Because if you try to do tasks, you know, generic tasks using something that's trained on the medical data, you would introduce, you know, maybe more errors with your model. I think that's a great question. I think there are different ways to deal with different domains and verticals. And my personal view is there's no black and white. I think the generic models is going to be worked on and it's going to be improved constantly. You know, there's been great progress. Uh, If you look at the track record and the, the, you know, models that is becoming more and more capable, is becoming more and more powerful. And with the essentially more of the more data coverage, I think that the models can learn to deal with different domains and different applications, different scenarios. So that generic capability keeps improving until this model is adequate for all different applications and different domains and different verticals, there's always some of those domains might need more of the sort of improvement or uh, specific, you know, uh, customization or optimization in order to satisfy the sort of workload and the workflow and uh, particular requirements in terms of performance. Uh, I think a medical domain is one of those extreme example because it's uh, you know one of the hardest domain hardest uh, the vertical in order to uh, get it right in order to get that you know adequately good enough to be used uh, the you know by doctors and medical 
workers there. Uh, so I think this is going to be two-leg approach. And uh, while we try to improve the generic model capability, and there's always going to be some kind of need until that generic the model being you know, good enough and for that particular domain. And of course, a lot of things is really looking, if you look at the machine learning, look at the deep learning, a lot of things really depending on the data and how how much coverage you can get and uh, how you're able to train the data. Is that architecture going to be flexibility, uh, sort of flex- flexible enough to really incorporate all the knowledge and the information and, uh, you know, embedded in the data? And uh, when the technology keeps improving and uh, the more of the more data, the more sort of, you know, training becomes effective, being able to really extract that knowledge and the information and, uh, you know, embed it into part of the model. I think uh, gradually, eventually, I believe that, you know, the model is going to be good enough to handle almost all the domains and scenario. But in between, we have to take a pragmatic approach and saying, uh, how can we make this technology working as well as we could for all different, you know, applications and domains. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the trade-offs between you know, delivering a certain level of accuracy or quality and kind of runtime characteristics that you require as a service provider? You've talked a little bit about this in the context of hybrid versus end-to-end models, but you know, tell us a little bit more about kind of the engineering aspects of delivering a, a service at the scale that you're operating. Absolutely. And I think as a service provider, I'm providing this cloud, you know, cloud and edge service and for, you know, speech, speech recognition and text to speech and as, as well. I think a major challenge is really how to be able to really get in the latest and the greatest technology and the innovations in the science into the production, into the service. And also really shorten the cycle of the, uh, you know, once the technology is capable, that how we, we can get that into the service. You know, one particular example I would probably use is really text-to-speech. I mostly, so far, I mostly talk about speech recognition, but text-to-speech is also had an amazing journey and, uh, you know, coming from the previous technology into the deep learning. And so I think a text-to-speech and, you know, prior to deep learning era, it was mostly concatenative system using unit selection. And it has pretty good uh, sound quality, but you have to store a lot of voice samples and, uh, uh, you know, in different contexts that adds up to, uh, you know, huge amount of the, the storage. And it, also you have to record a professional voice talent and uh, for you, ha- you basically have to sign a big long contract with a voice talent and then you can record all the samples <laughs> and uh, sometimes takes months and a year to record you know, enough samples to be able to build a system, uh, a sound that can cover all the really sort of great and uh, you know, quality. Uh, so I think in 2016, it was the WaveNet and you know, Tactra 2 really sort of pioneered the end-to-end speech synthesize and uh, that sort of having that new TTS being able to sound a lot better, really close to human quality. And another benefit is like a newer TTS actually reduce the entry barrier on the data recording because you can leverage a wide range of the data. We no longer need a single voice having many, many, many hours. So we can, we still need some in order to, you know, fine tune, but essentially we can have a pre-trained model with all this data coming from same data used to train the speech recognition system that we can, you know, pre-train a big model and uh, then we can, you know, fine tune that to a particular voice that getting us uh, really sort of close to human quality. But one of the things that when we, that comes out, I think it's just 
super, super slow because it's a autoregressive model. Then it's a sequential. The inference, everything is really slow. You do need, you know, sequential basis. You, you get one sample and you get, you produce one sample, then you, you know, produce the next sample, you know, in that fashion. So I think a lot of work is for new TTS was to really saying how we can get this uh, amazing technology into the service and uh, still sort of with a reasonable cost so we can actually productize the system. So there's a huge amount of work being done there. There's a couple of things. One of them is really from modeling technology, uh, sort of from technology point of view, can I have something sort of roughly given me the same performance and about much more faster, much more you know simpler, right? That's one thing. The second thing is, how can we being able to distill knowledge? Typically, that's you know a lot of common techniques being used to teach a student model. Then you can have a teacher model which which is much bigger, and it could be the sort of autoregressive. But then your student model could be much more compact than run in parallel. That's a common technique we use. Then so of course there's other common techniques and to make the model smaller. For example, you can do the you know quantization a bit is a typical standard that you can you know even do go further if we're willing to sacrifice the sort of precision a little bit and uh, there's also some other techniques such as the SVD then you can basically decompose a big uh, sparse matrix into uh, multiplication of the smaller matrix then you sort of compress number of parameters and uh, all those um, you know since combined together that's how we being able to you know get the neural TTS into our service and uh, you know, we want the first one or one for the first one to get a new TTS into a service stack and being able to have the cost and the latency coming down by even, you know, hundreds of times and to really make it a realistic offering for the customers. And the, we also very good that we're able to add this customized new voice capability into our service. And we have had uh, some of the, you know, really happy customers being able to build their own brand of voices and with the characteristics they want. For example, AT&T had this box bunny voice and uh, they really used that to sort of being able to engage with the customers. That's an example on the text-to-speech, but for speech recognition, it's more or less the same. Uh, some of, we have to, every new model comes into showing you better accuracy. I think there's a lot of work being done to make the inference faster, to make the model smaller, to make a latency more than it used to be, or even sort of with an improved latency. And that's a big part of what we have to do. Right. What kind of data collection or data coverage does a customer require to customize a voice in the neural TTS? service? Is it a lot of data or is there a high degree of transfer from the base models to the custom model? There's a very high degree of sort of, you know, transfer from the base model, essentially the pre-trained model we have. And I think we probably, to get a decent quality of a customized voice, you probably need to spending not a whole lot. I think it's probably few hours of the data in order to getting a really high quality customized voice. We also internally, we also experiment with the personal voice. Actually, I have mm -hmm. a personal voice fund for myself. Okay. I just uh, spent about 30 minutes or so and, uh, you know, recording some of the, with some of the prompts, recording some voice. And I get a fairly decent quality and uh, personalized voice fund that, you know, we've been using that uh, playing my 
you know, own email. And uh, uh, it's really kind of interesting and to hear your own voice and uh, sort of reading your own email, for example. And it's kind of very interesting experience. Can you talk a little bit about the cross-language aspects of what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. And uh, a lot of the mission, I think we have a mission is to really having our technology helping to break language barrier. And, uh, you know, of course, together with the machine translation. And uh, um, essentially, we want to be able to cover as many languages as possible. And rich resource language like English, the data is coverage is not a problem. We have plenty of data, of course, the more, the better. But when it comes down to the sort of smaller language, I think the data resource becomes a bottleneck. And and uh, there's a low resource languages and uh, fairly challenging that in terms of the, you know, really getting same amount of data or same quality or same coverage of the data as we have with the, you know, rich resource languages. Uh, so that's when the, the we invest a lot in transfer learning. What we do is we want to really combine the knowledge that we have across many different languages that we build a, you know, multilingual and the model that to, as a, you know, pre-trained model that we can Therefore, use now model, we can transfer, do the transfer learning and being able to sort of fine tune that with a very small amount of data for the, the low resource language that we'd be able to, you know, build a good quality of the model. And some of the times is the interest finding as part of work is even for some certain language that we don't think we have pretty good amount of data. For example, Italian, we do have pretty decent amount of data, not as much as English, and uh, but it's still good. What mm-hmm. we still find is the transfer learning and uh, is we are able to leverage the English, the data, if we build this, if we take an English model as a base model, then we transfer, we do the transfer learning with the Italian, we're actually being able to see the better performance, better accuracy with uh, Italian language. So I think that was eye-opening saying like, you know, even it's not a, a sort of tail end towards the really small, uh, low-resource language, that the technique of the transfer learning is can be very powerful if we can pull all the resources across many, many different languages Then we can we're able to leverage that the information knowledge and uh, uh, in different languages to benefit others. So right now we offer the speech recognition for more than 100 um, languages and uh, and the locales and dialects and uh, same thing for text-to-speech. We have 70 languages and we are, you know, adding very soon, we're going to add more to reach 100 languages in the the, the dialects and the milestone. And this, uh, you know, of, of course, our goal is to actually you know, getting even more so we be able to have that coverage and be able to help people to, they need to do to, you know, getting higher productivity to do more lessons they were not able to do before. Mm-hmm. And now if we connect some of these things that we're talking about and say I wanted to do a custom voice font for neural TTS that I can use to read my email in Italian or something like that, do I need to record the data in Italian or is there a cross-lingual aspect to this? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes. And uh, we actually recently released, a few months ago, we released this capability that 
you can customize the voice then uh, you know without speaking another language essentially if you you can create a voice uh, we can create a voice font for you with some of the samples from you reading you know english text then we can create a font uh, with a uh, course lingo transfer learning and uh, and then we can actually get your font that uh, you can speak italian you can even speak chinese and uh, if you want and uh, or the, you know other language under your choice uh, so that's that's all benefit from the the deep learning technology that we have the you know acoustic model of the TTS that is trained from many of the speech uh, sort of speakers and the thousands of the, the speakers we are trained from you know tens of languages and uh, you know it's course lingo uh, in nature and also another thing we can transfer learning is not only the language but also the style we can have a, a different style depending on the application you can say wow this is a, you know happy sound and uh, or you know some other styles and uh, that's some of the work i think is all part of you know investment learning you know, technology for tts for customization and we continue building on that and so the style there it sounds like it's not just a kind of a cadence or, or speed or something like that but also a emotional content uh, what are some other examples of styles in this context Yes, it is the emotional um, aspect and uh, of the styles, and we can the styles of course has multiple aspects. I, I think this particular we can have the, for example, the you know happy and sad, and uh, that will be you know examples of the typical examples of the emotional styles. And we are also looking into some other sort of vertical domain. For example, we know for the news anchor to read the news, that's fairly different from. Some other, for example, personal assistant. That personal assistant, you wanted to be relatively warm and uh, cheerful, and uh, for news anchors, you wanted to be relatively calm and uh, sort of, you know, feel like you know that's that's the source of the you know authentic news, right? Those are the things, and uh, you know, of course, how we have a few choices and in our service, and right now, I think that's something we continue working on to see how we can. Being able to have the even richer offering in terms of the you know voice fonts and the many of the different voice fonts you can pre-select and also you know different styles and uh, customers to choose from for so to best match their application their purpose. Now, thinking about things like voice fonts and neural TTS also calls to mind dangers like deep fakes and and the like. How do you manage your responsibilities there? Yes, that's a great question. That's something that is really high on our radar screen. And uh, I think we deeply believe that, well, we do have a lot of horsepower and uh, in terms of technology, but being able to, you know, offer that technology, offer that service, you know, responsible manner is the top priority for us. And so deepfake is certainly a problem. When, when you get, uh, for example, we are able to create the voice that is so sort of sound like a real person and that uh, but we have to be super responsible that making sure that it does not fall into the hands of the sort of malicious users and trying to use that voice to do something and uh, that uh, not intended for uh, so we have dedicated responsible ai team and we also microsoft as a company also have particular team and uh, you know working on this and making sure that uh, the technology is sort of being used as AI and uh, being used in a responsible way. So particularly for the 
new uh, sort of voice that is that we you know we can customize and uh, we have a rigorous process and we have a gating process so it's not open to it's gated meaning you have to apply for that and we have a review process that uh, we making sure that you uh, we understand your scenario we understand you know who you are as a customer and the, um, that's a screening that's you know gating process in addition we also have something we call the liveless check and uh, building into part of, uh, part of the in- enrollment. Uh, so we make sure that, for example, if we customize voice for you, you go to the site and uh, we have a process and we make sure we want you to read a particular prompt and making sure that the voice is coming from you instead of you you cannot uh, copy some of the voice from the internet then you start to register and, and uh, trying to create a voice. That's, that's not allowed because a liveless mm-hmm. checker is going to catch that and you will not be able to create something on behalf of other people. Those are the, the some of the, the ways that we've been implemented as part of service. In addition, we are actively working on other things. We, for example, we're working on the watermark feature for the, our newer TTS that we be able to offer a, a unique watermark that we can uh, you know, detect. And for whatever the voice and the font we release, we'll be able to reliably know that's generated by new TTS and we can probably we can also offer to the other people who want to check and if it's the voice generated by us and uh, those are some aspects we're working on and again this is top priority for us mm-hmm. awesome where, where do you see the future going for these kinds of services I think there's uh, continue improving the technology itself. I think there's uh, still a lot of work for us to do, even both for speech recognition and for text-to-speech. I think the technology has really come into a, a point that is that can power up a lot of scenarios, and we have that power up. You know, many of the first-party uh, applications such as Teams, Office, and PowerPoint, and uh, you know Microsoft Word, and we also have you know many of the external customers, and uh, you know encoding AT&T, encoding the Tesla in China, including you know Samsung and uh, you know, all state insurance for cost center everyone. But I think there's still a need of to improve the technology and the, for speech recognition, for example, we need to make it much better in terms of the entity and being entity well. Sometimes we got a name and uh, uh, it's hard to recognize because the things are hard to recognize what the particular acronyms or some other you know terminology jargons and things like that. So those are the aspects and that we have to. Adopt, you know, uh, sort of really making the, the increased bat to, you know, improve its capability. There's, you know, multilingual, there's, uh, you know, code switching, for example. Sometimes we find that for particular application for a different language, for example, because there's always a mix of the English and other language together. So that, you know, code switching is a hard problem. We have to solve that. You know, better. We have to make the system much more robust and uh, being able to be portable, meaning from domains to domains and uh, from different channels and uh, uh, you know from different applications. And it needs to be really, really robust. For text to speech, is is also similar. That uh, we have the way. For example, when you have a non-paragraph, right now for single utterance, it sounds really good. But when you have a uh, trying to read an article, read an email that it has a long context and uh, haven't. It also has an entity problem. Sometimes it does not pronounce a particular you know, word or name correctly. Or sometimes you have this contextual thing and uh, if it's a long article and the email that you have to be able to have the 
better handle of this context than you know with the long article. The, the, all those are the technology sort of you know the improvement that we need to make to make it even more close to the human, close to the human parity, not only in a particular domain, but you know generically just across the board, mm-hmm. being able to getting closer and closer to the human capability there. And then, of course, landing that with the, the more and more applications and, uh, you know, customers. And uh, you know, it's always the case when you apply technology to a particular scenarios, that's what we learn the most. And it's like we learn the system is not doing well in this particular aspect. And for that particular application, those kind of learning are really helping us to be able to keep improving our fundamental capability and the only ways to sort of really you know have a more customer and uh, being able to you know work better with the customer scenarios awesome well lee thanks so much for joining us to chat a little bit about what you're working on and innovations in the speech recognition and text-to-speech areas thank you so much sam it's my pleasure thank you all right everyone that's our show for today To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.